0: We are looking this morning at Ephesians chapter 2. And I'm going to go ahead and read all 10 verses in this first section, but we're only going to look at the first six together. Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 6. And I know, as usual, you're going to find it helpful to have your own copy of Scripture open and to be reading along with me. Uh, It always is a good reminder for us that there are no chapter or verse divisions in the original Greek and Hebrew in which God gave the scriptures. Um, We sometimes fall into the trap of not seeing the connections that go before because we are so catered to think in those divisions. And this is one of those sections where it would do us a world of good to remember what has just gone before. Paul has just enumerated those seven spiritual blessings with which God has blessed his people in Christ in the heavenly places, he has then turned to the Lord in prayer, thanking God for them and praying that they would know more of what Christ has already accomplished for them, that they would know the hope of their calling, that they would know the riches of God's inheritance in the saints, and that they would know the exceeding greatness, and this is where it's really important, the exceeding greatness of the mighty power that God has promised to work in them who believe, and you'll notice at the end of chapter 1, that power that he worked, verse 20, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Um, This section is going to follow on to that, as I hope you're going to see, and God's going to talk now about how that power is at work in us as he raises his people from spiritual death to life. And so we're looking this morning at Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. And now the Apostle Paul says, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him, that we should walk in them. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, on November 3rd, 1955, Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great uh, English Baptist, who was actually Welsh, but the great Baptist minister in England, preached what would become probably his most notable sermon. And it was on two words in this passage, and I want to draw your attention to them this morning, It was on two words at the beginning of verse 4, and that sermon was titled, But God. But God. And this is what Lloyd-Jones said in that sermon. Listen to this. He says, these two words in and of themselves, in a sense, contain the whole gospel These two words, in and of themselves, in a sense, contain the whole gospel. The gospel tells of what God has done, God's intervention. It is something that comes entirely from outside us and displays to us that wondrous and amazing and astonishing work of God, which the apostle goes on to describe and to define in the following verses. The entirety of the gospel is, in a sense, bound up in that little conjunction joined to the general name of God, but God who is rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in sins made us alive together in Christ. Now I want us to consider this morning as we look at the first six verses just two things. I want us to consider first the reminder about the depravity of man and then I want us to consider secondly the reminder of the great mercy and love of God. The reminder of the depravity of man and then the reminder of the great mercy and love of God. Well, This is one of those passages, if you're visiting with us for the first time, there is a part of me that I wish I didn't have to preach, but I do, and I'm going to preach it unashamedly, and it is vital that we understand this, because if we're ever going to understand the greatness of the gospel, if we're ever going to understand the greatness of what the infinitely holy God has done for us in all of his great mercy and and his exceeding great love for us, We have to understand the awfulness, the terribleness of what we are, what we are by nature. Um, We are never going to understand the glory of the gospel, and we are never going to understand the greatness of the grace of God in Christ if we don't come to terms with the fact of what we are. And I want to say this before we look at this this morning. One of the great needs we have throughout the entirety of our life is to be reminded of what we are by nature. We live in a day when people will tell you, everyone will tell you, the, the great problem is you need to know how wonderful you are. You need to know that others should treat you so well, that you're deserving of others treating you well. I, I, every day I read online some well-meaning, even professing Christian, saying things about how you deserve better than what others give you. No, you don't. It, let, me, let me just tell us Today, we don't deserve better than what we get. In fact, the Apostle's going to tell us that what we deserve by nature is wrath, the wrath of God. That's what we deserve. Um, You know, this passage is probably, arguably, next to Romans chapter 1, verses 18 and following. It is the most serious and pointed and direct statement about what all mankind is by nature. Now, I want to just point out this morning, before we look at this, that the Apostle Paul is not coming in and just trying to make everybody feel really bad because he's a terrible person. In fact, he's going to include himself. He's going to move from the pronoun you, what you were by nature, to what we were by nature. We all, he says. Paul is going to put himself on the same plane. It doesn't matter whether Jew or Gentile, young or old, rich or poor. It doesn't matter. uh, Paul is flattening out everything, and he's saying, by nature, we all We're dead in sins and trespasses. We all were slaves to our lust and passion. We all were under the influence of the evil one. We all were objects of God's wrath. I say this sort of jokingly, but this passage also highlights uh, the apostles' preferred pronouns. You were dead in sins, we were dead in sins. God did this for us. This is the most important pronoun passage in the Bible. I just said that the gospel is going to hinge on the but God, but it also rests on understanding that, that the bad news, what we are, and it, it built into the fabric of this fallen world because of Adam, because of what Adam did that, that Paul is going to tell us here. He's going to say our spiritual condition is not that we're sick, not that we are on the point of death, not that we need some help, not that we need better education, not that we need um, better financial support, not that we need a better environment. You see, that's why this is so important, that education, a better environment, better financial stability doesn't solve the deepest problem of our lives. Paul says, by nature, we are dead in trespasses and sins. Now, if I ask you this morning to tell me what death is, um, the best we can do is contrast it with what life is, but we don't even know what life is in an objective sense, we know that death is the cessation of activity, that it is motionlessness, it is, um, it is a state of not being able to be affected on from outside, that when someone dies, um, there is absolutely nothing that can impact he or she from outside. But when the Bible speaks about death, it speaks about death as separation from God. You'll remember in the garden when The Lord gave Adam that command not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And and he said to Adam, literally in the Hebrew, he said, in the day that you eat of it, in dying you will die. And what he meant was that Adam and everyone in him, all of us that, that come from him, are going to die spiritually. And then that spiritual death is going to lead to physical death. And then that physical death is going to lead to eternal death. And what the apostle here is saying is the condition in which we are born by nature is that we are born absolutely alienated from God, dead in sins, unable to do anything good. Um, listen to this. John Calvin, in his sermon on this passage, said, What is to be found among worldly men, even among those who are most honored? No matter how much we may flourish, no matter how splendid we may appear before men, no matter how much we possess to, to invite the esteem of men, yet we are only wretched putrefying flesh. Um, I understand if you don't like to hear that, I get it. But it doesn't change the truthfulness of that. Calvin says there is nothing but rottenness and infection in us. This is not my feel-good sermon. I know that. There is nothing but rottenness and infection in you. And there is nothing but rottenness and infection in me. We can we can groom ourselves, we can learn how to speak, we can put our best foot out, our best face on, and there is nothing by nature but rottenness and infection in us. And we forget this, don't we? We forget it even uh, when we baptize one of our covenant children. I heard John Gersner say many years ago that He was going to baptize a covenant child and the mom said, well, and we have these in the South, we need to get this beautiful white smocked baptismal gown for the baby and and we can't do it until we've gotten that. And Gerstner said, why do you have to have that? And, And she said, to denote the baby's innocence. And Gerstner said, then why are we baptizing the baby? Because baptism says you're not innocent. Baptism says you need to be cleansed. Baptism says you are filthy and only the blood of Jesus can cleanse us. That in us, as Calvin said, nothing but rottenness and infection exist. Such corruption that heaven and earth must be infected with it, he says, until God has brought about a change. Now, why why is the apostle importing this here? When in chapter 1, he told us all these glorious things that God has freely given us in Jesus. I think because he understands how apt we are to forget what we are by nature. Um, It's good for us to think back, if we had a conversion experience, to think back of what we were before the Lord brought us from death to life that miserable condition, unable to help ourselves, unable to bring ourselves out of that condition, unable to see the glorious truths of the gospel, unable to see the Son of God by faith, unable to trust in him, only living for ourselves. Notice how Paul puts this. He says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. We were dead men walking. I have not watched the show Walking Dead. I I don't care. I don't care about the show. I'm sure some of you have because people love it. But I want you to think that's the world around us. Everyone around us is dead men walking. Everyone around us is spiritually dead individuals walking. Notice what Paul says, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. Now, there are three things Paul says here. He tells us of the three enemies that are uh, keeping us in this state of depravity by nature, and it is the flesh... We're dead in sins and trespasses. He'll go on to say that we were fulfilling the passions of our flesh and the desires of our mind. It is the world, the sons of disobedience among whom we all conducted ourselves, and the evil one. It's the world, the flesh, and the devil. And what Paul is also saying here is three things. He is saying that our condition by nature is one of spiritual death, spiritual bondage, And then, perhaps the worst enemy of all, God Himself. Because He says, notice, He says there in verse, the end of verse 3, fulfilling the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Um, There is not one person. Our Lord Jesus accepted who has ever walked this world who does not deserve the wrath of God. There's not one person who has ever walked walked this world besides Jesus who does not deserve the wrath of God. Every person around us, starting with the person I live with every day myself, by nature, deserves God's wrath. Now, If we forget that, we're never going to understand the greatness of what God has done for us. That's why Paul's doing this. He wants you to understand that the God under whose wrath uh, we live by nature is the God who is going to go to the greatest length to bring us out of that condition, to bring us from spiritual death to spiritual life, to make known the greatness of his mercy and his love to the objects that don't deserve that, I do not deserve the mercy and the love of God. You do not deserve the mercy and the love of God. And yet God sees us in that condition. And the greatness of our depravity is going to be matched by the greatness of his mercy and grace. Um, I want us to consider now in a focused way the glory of The mercy and love of God in verses 4 through 6. I've already noted that the gospel really turns on those two words, but God. Now, uh, one theologian has said this, and I I found this to be very helpful to me as a young Christian. He said, um, it's wonderful that the words are but God, because if the words were and God, it would mean inevitable ruin and dreaded judgment. Don't miss that. If the words were and God, it would mean judgment. But here Paul says, but God. Despite what we were, despite what we are by nature, despite the fact that we not only didn't have anything to commend ourselves to God with, but we were the enemies of God, we were, Paul will say, later in this chapter, he will say we were alienated from the life of God without hope, without Christ. In chapter 4, he'll say we walked according to the darkness of our minds. Our minds were darkened. Our wills were darkened. Every part of us is infected with sin, and, and that's why he'll say we were dead in sins and trespasses. And now he says, but God, and notice this, being rich in mercy. Now, He's going to talk about two of the great attributes of God, mercy and love. He has talked about the grace of God back in chapter 1. He's going to resume right after this talking about the grace of God. But here, notice this, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Now, he doesn't say here that God is merely merciful Um, When we think of mercy, we think of it as an attribute of compassion. We see someone who is hurting. We see someone who is in need. We see someone who has brought themselves to a place of hurting, and and we have compassion on them, and we want to show them mercy. Um, But let me just say this this morning. If you see someone who has died, you don't have mercy on them because they're past the point of being helped. And so you see, God is not just merely looking at people who are hurting and and not merely just pitying us. He is actually looking at objects that are unable to be helped by anyone else. And so Paul's saying, God who is rich in mercy, there is no end to his mercy. He is infinite in mercy. His mercy matches his infinitude. Does God ever run out of mercy For the objects of his mercy? No. This is why the psalmist can say, his mercy endures forever. You know that psalm. Recurrently, his mercy endures forever. His mercy endures forever. The psalmist says it repeatedly. His mercy endures forever. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. And that's good news for me. And that is good news for you, given what our natural condition is. And yet, Paul is saying something even more than that. He is distinguishing between mercy and love. And he is saying that God, who is rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, brought us from death to life. I am sure I've said this to you in the past, but almost every single person you will ever meet will say something like, You know what I believe about God? I believe God is love. But they don't really believe that God is love because they don't look at the son of his love who sacrificed himself as the demonstration of that love. And most of the Christians that I know who are trusting in Christ have a very difficult time coming to a settled place where they actually believe that God loves them. Unbelievers say God is love. They don't believe it. Believers know that he is love, but often doubt it. Um, Sinclair Ferguson has said the Christian life so much is he loves me, he loves me not, he loves me, he loves me not, constantly, up and down, roller coaster. And so Paul is saying, look, here's what you were, you are so much worse than you know by nature. So much worse. But God's love is so much greater that the only way that Paul can speak about it is by heaping up these adjectives. God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Now, think about that. No matter what you've been, no matter what you are by nature no matter what you've done sinful in your life because you are dead in sins by nature. That has not hindered God from making you the object of his great love. That's amazing. Jeremiah says, the Lord says through Jeremiah, I have loved you with an everlasting love. My favorite theologian, Gerhardus Voss, says the greatest proof that God will never stop loving us is that he never began. It's everlasting. I can't explain that. I just know he'd never started loving you. He's always loved his people. He has made us the objects of his love, and that love then drives the mercy, the rich mercy. His love for us drives his being merciful to us. And then the expression of that, notice. Notice the expression, He says, even when, notice verse 5, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Um, This is that glorious doctrine of regeneration, spiritual resurrection. If you're a Christian today, if you're a true believer, it's because you've experienced a true resurrection A spiritual resurrection from spiritual death to spiritual life in Christ. And here's the glorious truth. I said at the very beginning of this sermon that all of this is tied to the end of Paul's prayer in chapter 1 when he said that God reserves his power to be at work in us who believe according to the power that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand. Now, I think I said this. How much power... How much power does it take to raise someone from the dead? I have no idea. But it is more power than you have ever witnessed in any sphere in your short life on this earth. And here's what what Paul is saying. He's saying the same power that God used in raising God the Son out of the tomb from the dead on the third day, the same power that he invested in raising Christ from the dead and bringing him back to life. The same power that Jesus used when he stood at the tomb of Lazarus and said, Lazarus, come forth. And that man who was dead for four days heard the voice of the Son of God and came forth and lived. That same power. He says, God caused to work in you and to operate in your soul when you were dead in sins to bring you from death to life and to raise you up, and to seat you with Christ in the heavenly places. That's what it means to be a Christian. You know, many people say things like this, Christianity, religions, the opium of the masses, or, uh, you know, Christians, they they just do that because they need a crutch. No, we need a spiritual resurrection. That is what Christianity is. That's the message of the gospel. That God has said, I am going to raise my people from the dead. There's a beautiful illustration of this in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 37, in that valley of dry bones. And the Lord brings the prophet out to the valley, and he says, look at these dry bones. And the Lord says, can they live? And the prophet says, Lord, you know. And, and he's essentially saying, I have no idea, no, no. And the Lord says to Ezekiel, prophesy to the Spirit, pray and say, come and breathe life into these dry bones. And the Spirit comes and flesh and ligaments and, and life-like coloration, I don't even have a word for that, come into these bones and God causes them to live, and that's a picture of old covenant Israel being spiritually revived from their apostasy, but it's a picture of regeneration. It's a, it's a picture of what Paul is saying here. That is the essence of Christianity. Um, in fact, I'm going to say this morning, if that's never happened, then you're not a true believer if that's never happened to you. But the good news is that God has said there is a way out of that state of spiritual death Into spiritual life through the resurrection of Jesus because of his rich mercy and his great love. There's a way out. Um, I I love this so much, y'all. Eric Alexander says this God made us alive with Christ by raising us together with Christ. He says, We are not just spectators of Christ's resurrection. We are not just spectators of Christ's resurrection. We are participants. Isn't that amazing? You here today, if you have experienced the new birth, if you have been brought from spiritual death to spiritual life, you are not just a spectator of what happened when Christ came out of the tomb. You are a participant with him. And not just that he raised us up and left us. He raised us up in union with Christ. And so what happened to him happened to us. When he came out of the tomb, you came out of the tomb with him because he represents his people. We were chosen in him, Paul says. Before the foundation of the world, everything Jesus did, he did as the representative of his people. When he walked out of that tomb, we came out with him. He left our sins there, buried away from the presence of God. And then when he ascended to heaven, Paul is saying here, he raised us up, notice, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ. Do you know where you're sitting right now? You're sitting in the best city in the United States. Amen? Come on now. Come on. But greater than that, you are sitting with Christ right now, positionally in heaven. You are united to him. Where he sits, you are seated with him. He is the new redeemer, the last Adam. He is the representative of a redeemed humanity. We are already there even though we're not there. That's what Paul's saying. Do you understand the greatness of what God has done for you? We are already seated with him in the heavenly places. Um, Eric Alexander has this other great meditation where he essentially says whenever, whenever the apostle Paul tries to find an illustration To explain what has happened to a man or a woman or a boy or a girl um, when God brings them from death to life, he says that Paul ransacks the universe to look for an illustration, and the best illustration he can find is what happened at creation. The Apostle Paul will say, the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness has shone into our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You see, he's saying the only way to explain what has happened here to you is that what he did at creation, he has done in your soul. And this becomes evident. I want to kind of close with this. This becomes evident because when this happens, when we were in darkness, when we were dead in sins, all of this, everything I'm saying right now, was completely lost on us. We didn't have spiritual eyes to see it. We didn't have spiritual ears to hear it. I remember as a boy, every sermon was so drony. I just wanted it to end. And then when I was converted, I, I could have listened to the gospel being preached for days on end without stop. What happened? This happens. I heard a story about a young man who was spiritually dead, and his parents were Christians, and he found a tape by a really amazing preacher um, in our circles. And, he listened to the sermon that this minister preached every day for 30 days without any benefit, and on the 30th day, something happened, and God gave him new life. Um, we, we can't wait to hear these things. Our souls need more. That's what new life looks like. We're now spiritually united to the living God. We were dead because we were spiritually alienated from him. Now we are united to him, and, and we want all that we can get. Um, you see, it's not, it's not just a reformation of life. You don't need just better ethics. The, that's the best the world can give you is ethics. This is a resurrection Now, I'm going to say two things here as we close. First, if this has happened to you, and I I know it has happened to many of you in this place, if this has happened to you, the apostle wants you to be astonished afresh at what God has done because of his rich mercy and great love for you. He wants you to just, he wants this to wash over you as if you're hearing it for the first time. He says, remember, remember. By the way, the key to so much of the Christian life is just remembering what we already know to be true, but we forget. So Paul says, let that wash over you, what God has done for you. And then I want to say to you, if you have never experienced this, if this is all still just darkness to you, boring, droney, if you can't understand it, if you don't want to hear it, there's good news. There is a way out. God is saying there is a way out of that condition. He is committed to bringing men and women and boys and girls out of spiritual death and darkness and into spiritual life and light in Christ. And it's because of what Jesus did. It's because of what he did on the cross, taking all that depravity on himself, taking our death on himself. How does this work? He tasted death for us, the writer of Hebrews says. He died in our place because we were dead in sins. He took the condemnation. He fell under the power of darkness. He fell prey to the hands of wicked and ungodly men. The world, the flesh, and the devil were unleashed on Jesus on the cross because of our depravity so that we might be brought into light and life. And that's good news because if you've never experienced this, I'll tell you this morning, the living God is active in doing this today in the lives of men and women and boys and girls. And when he begins to do it in your life, you'll know because those things that you hated and didn't understand before, you will love more than anything. Um, I want to say to believers just here at the end, we will never exhaust... a contemplation and a comprehension of the richness of God's mercy and the greatness of his love. Notice what he says here. I'm just going to read this last verse. This will come up next week. Notice verse 7. That in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. What is eternity going to be like? God showing you more of his mercy, more of his love, more of the riches of his grace, the immeasurable greatness, more of his kindness, just pouring it out on his people. What kind of God do we serve? We deserve his wrath. He gives us that. What an amazing God. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we do thank you that you are rich in mercy and that you have made us the objects of the greatness of your love. We do pray that you would make us to know those things in our soul, even as we acknowledge this morning what we are by nature, Lord. We abhor what we are. We hate the evil and the depravity and the wickedness and the alienation in which we have lived. and. And yet we thank you that even when we were dead, you made us alive with Christ. We do pray that you would cause these truths to wash over our minds and our hearts, that you would renew us, that you would give us a newfound sense of astonishment at what you have done for us, and that you would increase our gratitude and our praise and our worship on account of it. We do pray, our God, that you would continue to bring those who are spiritually dead to spiritual life in Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.